Hi, I'm Dr. Whitney Hauser for drycoach.com. Welcome to our podcast series. Today I'm joined by Dr. Scott Schachter from Pismo Beach, California. Welcome, Scott. Hi, Whitney. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. We've had you on before to talk to us, and you know we've had a lot of interest in some of your comments, so we're bringing you back today to talk about managing meibomian gland dysfunction and the role that nutrition plays in that management. So let's go ahead and jump in with our first question. So what do you think is the link between MGD and ocular surface disease? Well, I, I do think that's a question that could take up our entire hour-long podcast, Whitney. I'm kidding, but I, I do think that's something we could talk about for a long time. You know, MGD right. really, the more we look, the more we find. There have been studies that show that, that claim 86% of, of dry eye disease is meibomian gland dysfunction. And really, you know, there's a strong link there. Uh, we're looking at kids. We're finding it in younger and younger um, age groups. So I think it overlies a lot of that. Anytime you don't have the right amount of quality or quantity of oil coming out and coating the chair film, holding the chair film together, you trigger osmolarity, hyperosmolarity, causing inflammation, uh, causing damage to the surface of the eye, adversely affecting vision. Uh, so it's something we're seeing all the time, primarily due to de- decreased blink rates. I think that's really playing a big role in what's going on with that. Right. I think you're probably right. As you kind of mentioned, digital device use and our younger population, there's an influence there when you have blink rate. The other thing, you know, as you mentioned, that's uh, 86% from the LIMP study. What they published in DUCE 2 was not only is it that 86% have meibomian gland dysfunction, but also that uh, continuum that some of our aqueous deficient people are not necessarily, you know, in a silo. They may also have some element of that. And I think that's an interesting thing that to kind of, look at is it's not just any one thing and there's a lot of overlap and mixed mechanism. Yeah, that's, I'd agree. I think to me, that was one of the biggest takeaways of dues too, is that no longer are they saying it's one or the other. They're looking at it, like you said, on a continuum. And I do think there's far more overlap than we had thought in the past. Right. I agree. And you may have the same experience when you look at things clinically. I very rarely have someone who is a strict aqueous deficient and has absolutely zero meibomian gland dysfunction uh, with it. What's what's been your experience? Oh, absolutely. Like I said, we see MGD. if If you look at glands on all your patients, I think you'd be shocked at how much you're seeing. Uh, you know, although we don't really know what normal is anymore, I don't think we have a good enough database to say this is what somebody's, what, what normal is. Just like in glaucoma, you know, you can see patients uh, born with a 0.8 cup. And, you know, unless you're seeing a progression of this, you really can't call it a disease state. So we just need to be looking more. Right. Well, you raise a good point. So to, to that point, why do you think imaging... <clears throat> meibomian gland imaging specifically is so important and how can it help the patients that we're seeing? Yeah, well, like I said, I guess I maybe answered your question already, but I think it's it's important that we look for patients at, or, or image patients at some sort of baseline to monitor for change. We've got to see yeah. what was normal for that patient and what's happening over time. Are our treatments helping these patients? So who so are imaging, you typically imaging in your office right now? I mean, you, 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 know, have, uh, you have a keratograph, is that right? Is that what you're using? I, I have a keratograph and I have a, a MyBox. I have both of those. Okay. And so what we're doing, if, if somebody scores seven or higher on a speed uh, questionnaire, a symptom survey, 
that puts them into just kind of a mini dry workup that we do on routine exams, and that finishes with imaging. What I do in my practice, we image lower meibomian glands just to get a sense of what's going on. Uh, we'll start treating patients, check them back in a month, and at that point we'll probably image the uppers as well so we have complete documentation. But for time's sake, I just like to get the lower lowers image. It's much quicker. And then I can explain to the patients very clearly, look, this is what's going on, and this is what we need to do about it. You know, a picture is definitely worth a thousand words when you're trying to explain that, you know, this is what normal probably looks like and this is what you look like and, and we need to jump in now. You're 40 years right. old, you've got this going on, what are you going to look like when you're 50, 60, 70? So I think imaging is very valuable uh, when right. you're looking at MGD. So you find the value for the patient not only in the treatment scenario but also in the education component to it too. Oh, absolutely. You know, I don't think patients, you know, doctors hardly look at meibomian glands historically. Uh, and so educating patients, I think, is in addition to doctors, I think that's all very important. Get the doctors to understand what's going on and get the patients to understand so they buy into their treatment more. Right. Well, and once again, you're kind of leading into my next question, which, you know, because there's a lot of complexity with dry in general, specifically with meibomian gland dysfunction. Why is managing MGD so challenging? Well, because I think, I think to, do it, to do it effectively, it does tend to present a challenge to be aggressive, to identify, and to treat. Well, perhaps the fact it's so ubiquitous, number one, is why it's so challenging. We see so much of it, and we're fighting something where possibly these decreased blink rates may be playing a role. You know, there's a couple theories on that, sort of top-down and uh, bottom-up theory, that obstruction uh, from, you know, decreased blink rates where you're seeing uh, the, the glands get plugged, the mybum, thick, mybum thickens, and the glands start to atrophy. And another way to look at that is by not blinking, you place a huge demand on the mybocytes to continue to produce mybum, that can cause premature aging of the meibomian gland, which also kills them. So we're really looking at a, a couple different scenarios and why this could be happening, but the, the root of it seems to be desiccating stress, which comes from staring at devices, not blinking, working in environments that, were, that are um, climate controlled. And if you can't fix that, then you're up against just trying to put a Band-Aid on, on the problem most of the time, and you can't really get patients to alter their blink rates. It, it's impossible right. to blink more. You can't, you can't do that. So I think that's the biggest challenge is that our patients are going to continue to stare at a computer all day and not blink, and, and the glands are either going to get plugged or burnt out, and so that's a problem. So we're just trying to put Band-Aids on a lot of this stuff and keep them going. Right. And I mean, while I agree with you, it's difficult to change patterns and to really make an impact in, in how someone's blink rate is, you know, at least raising awareness, raising their awareness, you know, when you're evaluating them. You know, and I originally didn't, I wasn't a big proponent of blink exercises, but I have some patients that really have latched onto that and run with it over the last couple of years and feel that they get both sign and symptom relief from their dryness, particularly when they're at a digital device. So I, I do think that's a possibility in terms of blink performance. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of different ways that we can treat dry eye, treat specifically meibomian gland dysfunction. What do you think are some of the most effective treatments, or I won't say most, but just some of the effective treatments that we have in our, at our disposal now? 
Well, I, I'd, say, I'd say I think Lipiflow has the most research to support support it as as really kind of a first line therapy, uh, cleaning out the glands, draining out the glands, and and starting over. Um, Cure Science has done an awful lot of research to support that. Uh, the effects of the Lipiflow are shown to last at least a year. Um, so the, the mybum quality seems to be improved for at least a year, maybe up to three years. There's ongoing research there. Right. Uh, warm, I think warm I've even compress- read, a, read a four-year study that said 50% improvement at four years, which I think is, is pretty incredible longevity of a single treatment. Right. Yes, I think that's uh, that's really uh, it's got the most science behind it and and with uh, J&J acquiring cure scientific we're going to see a lot more uh, public awareness of this therapy uh, warm compress is really at the heart of what we send patients home to do how often they do it you know compliance I think is a challenge with compresses um, and like I mentioned the blank exercises you know Caroline Blackie gave me a tip where she said if you if you can get your patient to squeeze their eyes tight for about 10 or 15 seconds, about four or five times a day, that will continue to draw that mitum out so you sort of help with some of the stasis that you can see. So that's important because you have to remember blink quantity, not not only blink quantity decreases, but blink quality right. as well. That's the challenge. I think that, um, I think mm-hmm. that one, of, uh, one of the studies that they published said that in a normal patient, if you will, a normal patient who does a forcible blink has an increase in 33 nanometers of mybum or lipid layer thickness. In an abnormal patient population, it's 19. But if you can take it abnormal and have it increase by 19 nanometers, that's a significant improvement. And that's why, frankly, a lot of our patients have figured that out. We'll have patients in our chair that are forcibly blinking as they're sitting there, and they have, you know, figured out their physiology that that makes an an impact for them. Right. Now, when you you talked earlier... Oh, go ahead. I was going to mention IPL is is also uh, uh, an up-and-coming treatment for MGD. I think that some recent papers have demonstrated that this is something that can be considered right up there with Lipiflow. Uh, so, right. so that's something that doctors should know as well. Well, you know, and it's funny, that's exactly the, sort of the direction I was going in that you mentioned a lot of the obstructive components of myobomian gland dysfunction. And while that is, you know, well-researched and, and well-reported, there's also an inflammatory component. And I think a lot of times doctors get into one camp or the other. You know, myobomian gland dysfunction is either completely obstructive or dry has an inflammatory component and they don't ever seem to intermingle. And I think, for instance, IPL does have that intermingling of inflammatory and obstructive as they've seen improvements in tear breakup time, but they've also seen improvements in inflammatory response. So you do raise a good point. So as we're talking about inflammation, you know, I want to touch on, you know, how you use omegas in practice, how you use nutraceuticals to kind of quell that potentially systemic inflammation that patients may be experiencing. Are you using omegas actively in your practice right now? We, uh, we certainly are. You know, I think, and, and I just want to quickly go back to your infl- inflammation comment there, that I think the, you're, that's, that's my message. When I run around the country talking about dry, that's my message. If you've got a patient with inflammation and you uh, address, an, or I'm sorry, if you have a patient with the MGD and they have inflammation, if you just treat the MGD, say with Lipiflow, for example, you likely still have inflammation after. And that's some of the challenges, and that's something that doctors don't always understand. And, and a great paper came out of University of New South Wales last year that showed 
in the presence of evaporative dry eye, they saw high levels of interferon gamma. Uh, that is an, an inflammatory cytokine. And you have to recognize that inflammation tends to overlie both parts. So don't rule that out if MGD does not mean there's no inflammation. So, so I'm passionate about that clearly, but I think that's important. Right. And then when you're talking about how to control it, you know, topically, number one is what I do. You know, I'll, I'll write an um, anti-inflammatory eye drop typically uh, right off the bat, but, but also inside out I think is important. Um, you know, we're really just kind of fighting this little microenvironment on the surface of the eye and trying to get everything under control. But if we can approach it systemically as well, I think that's a big win. And, and that comes down to uh, being healthy, uh, eating right, right, exercising, taking care of yourself. And uh, in my practice, what we do is we add um, GLA, gamma-linolenic acid, into the mix uh, to support that. Right. Well, you know, when you talk about a systemic approach, a lot of doctors kind of default when they think systemic treatment of meibomian gland dysfunction to something like a doxycycline, whereas a lot of times that's problematic for the patient in terms of photosensitivity, in terms of GI upset, and a lot of patients prefer a more holistic approach uh, to their care. So really using an omega product fits well in for a lot of patients that may have uh, MGD. So any more specifics that you want to offer about what you're doing in practice? I mean, how do you present that to patients? Yeah, you know, a few years ago, uh, we decided to add nutraceuticals, and we sell a few things out of our practice primarily to drive compliance. Uh, and right. so I really looked into the available nutraceuticals specifically for dry eye. And I landed on GLA or hydro-eye from science-based health. And, and, and I chose them largely. They are what their name describes. So they are science-based. Everything that they do is supported by research. I'm a big fan of following the science. Uh, don't, don't follow anecdata, I'd call it. You know, your, your mom liked it or your cousin liked this or that. Let's see the studies. So GLA has about seven uh, published peer-reviewed uh, pieces of literature to support that what they're doing is actually working. Um, so, uh, is any one but, particular study that speaks to you, you could kind of break down for us a little bit, give us an overview, yeah, no, at no, least a high-level overview? No, no doubt the, the paper that was published in Cornea by Flugfelder that showed that signs and symptoms improved after two months on GLA. Uh, so they found that OSDI reduced. They also found that that's corneal or smoothness factor uh, got better. And, and I'm a dry eyes of vision disease person. That's my mantra. And understanding that the tear film affects, profoundly affects how our patients see. And if I can improve patients' vision by putting them on this nutraceutical for a couple of months, then I'm, I'm going to do that. And, and you can see big changes. You see reduction in higher-order aberrations. You're seeing Im improvements in tear production by one of their studies. Uh, another study showed that um, contact lens comfort improved significantly after six months on GLA. Contact lens dropout is a big issue for practices. It's very expensive to right. practices. So... Uh, not only do we need to optimize materials and designs and solutions and modalities, but if we can get that from the inside out, then let's, let's do that. But you've got to really educate your patients that this is long-term strategy. This is not going to be a quick fix. Uh, you know, what's also great about science-based health is that if your patients aren't feeling better after 
two months, they can just return it. I try to coach them that let's, if you're not feeling better at two months, let's give it a little bit longer. But most of them do find pretty significant improvement after two, after two months. But you need to track that. So right. give them a, a validated questionnaire. Don't ask them, are you feeling better? Give them a questionnaire that's going to ask them the same questions every single time. And, and you can really follow exactly how they're doing. Right. You know, I've read some of the same studies that you're commenting on, and what I find impressive is, you know, in practice we always have this, these subsets of patient populations that seem to be the worst of the worst for us to treat. And, you know, a lot of what they tackled in these studies are they took perimenopausal women or postmenopausal women, they took Sjogren's patients and dissatisfied contact lens wearers. And, you know, in practice, that's your that's your you know, danger zone. You don't really want to see any of those patients sitting in your chair because they're really hard to satisfy. And it was impressive to me to see data that supported uh, improvement in those populations. So uh, as we turn now, let's talk a little bit about whole body nutrition, you know, whole food nutrition. Do you make any recommendations to your patients in terms of that? Um, not specifically. You know, I, I give them just like you talked about, that kind of 30,000-foot overview. You know, patients always ask, what can I do? You know, I'm a glaucoma suspect or I've got, you know, this other eye condition or whatever. What can I do? They want to know what pill can I take or what can I do? And my, my boring answer is always keep yourself healthy, eat right, exercise, take care of yourself. That's, that's really what it comes down to. Uh, and a lot of us could all eat better, you know, um, foods that are not processed, eat more veggies. I think we could all eat more, more vegetables. And, and so uh, I do talk to them a little bit about nutrition, uh, no, no doubt. Um, I think that's very important. And, and just My, general health. Right. My patients oftentimes, I mean, I think patients want to sometimes feel like they have a level of responsibility in their care, which is great. Uh, but sometimes it's like they want to think, well, what am I doing to myself to make this thing happen? And how can I stop doing it? <laughs> you know, so that oftentimes opens the door for a nutritional conversation. And I certainly don't blame poor nutrition on my patient's dry eye because the multifactorial nature it would be irresponsible to say it's any one thing. But as you mentioned, processed foods tend to have an inflammatory uh, response in the body. So steering people towards a just more globally healthy diet, I think, is just good doctoring, really, and, and could always be a good recommendation no matter what your specialty is. Yeah, inflammation is really turning out to be the culprit in so many disease states. Uh, so, uh, whatever we can do to try to lower inflammation, that's what we should be aiming for. No, I couldn't agree more. Well, I'd like to thank you, Scott, for joining us today, and thank you for listening to Dry Eye Coach Podcast. Join us again next time.